Well, as we uh, know, it's December and it's Christmas. I know it's Christmas because my my tie has Christmas carols on it. So uh, uh, now I have to wait till it's done. There we go. Okay. I didn't buy this tie. I want you to know it was given to me. But it's Christmas, and um, we began last week looking in the scriptures about um, this Christmas story that's so familiar to us. But I'm trying to uh, look at it in the book of Matthew, but don't turn to Matthew yet. Uh, And Matthew does something interesting, as I mentioned last week, that he he ties uh, Old Testament passages into the story. And he'll tell a little bit of the story about Christ, and then he'll say, now this is just as it was said in such and such a place, and then he takes you there. So let's go back. I want to continue this um, this wandering through the whole Bible, really. Go to Second Samuel chapter 5. It's on page 377, if you're using one of our Bibles. And what I want to do this morning is I want to walk you through several places in Scripture, and we'll end up in Matthew... And we'll, we'll end up there at what we sang about this morning, the birth of Christ, uh, the offering to him of our worship and our adoration. And then I want to ask us uh, some questions. I want to ask you, I'm asking myself too, the same questions. And they're important questions that come to us in light of all that we will, that we will see. Now in Second Samuel chapter 5... We're looking here um, about in we're dropping into the life of David. And this was just about a thousand years before Christ. So interesting that, you know, we live in 2010 and that's a thousand years before. So I don't know if you'd ever uh, some of you don't care about old books, but some of you like old books. And I, I have some old books. I have one a book that was printed in 1701. So that means it's over 300 years old, the book itself. Um, but when we're reading this story, this is actually 3,000 years old, okay? So you, it, it's a recently printed. Your book isn't 3,000 years old, but, the, but it was written that long ago. And this is talking about David. And let's read it in verse, uh, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, We are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king, so Saul was the first king of Israel, kind of did some things right, but did a lot of things wrong. And so he's moving off the scene. He says, previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then they anointed David king over Israel. So you see here in verse 3, David is becoming the king uh, of Israel. That which God had already said, you will be it, but now the people are recognizing that, and he's the king. But I want you to notice two phrases in verse 2. It says, and the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people and you will be a ruler over my people. So 
the the king that the Lord has in mind for his people is one who rules, but also one who shepherds. He uses that word shepherd. And of course, we know that God took David out of being a shepherd and made him the shepherd of Israel. Now, um, not too many years later, now turn to um, uh, uh, chapter 7. Yeah, so Second Samuel chapter 7. We're not, I'm not exactly sure how many, maybe a decade later or so, something like that. Maybe a little longer. Beginning in verse 12, what, what happened was David is saying, he's, he, he has said, you know, I've got a place to live, but um, we're still using this tabernacle for the ark. And, and, and let's build God a house. Let's build a temple. And God appeared to David. And he basically said, you're a, you're a man of bloodshed and war. I'm not going to have you build the temple. I'll have your son build it. But then he goes on and he tells David something God does. And he says in verse 12, it says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, meaning he's, di- he's died and he's buried, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God has made a promise uh, to David that a descendant after him would be risen up and he would be on this throne and it would be a throne that would last forever. And then if you look down at verse 18, you see David's response. He's overwhelmed with this. It says, then it says, David, the king, went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. So David understood that this was a prophecy that God had given him, that in the distant future, a descendant of his would rise up and would be king and sit on the throne, and it would be a throne that would be forever. Now, fast forward about 300 years, okay? And turn to Second Chronicles chapter 32. Uh, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles are all, they kind of overlap to one extent or another. They're telling some of the same stories from different perspectives, a little bit like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the same story, but different perspective. This is Second Chronicles, it's on page 559, chapter 32. There have been different kings. Come, they've come and gone. This is 300 years later from David. It's a, it's a little bit farther than the history of our own country. We're not yet 300 years old, the United States. It's, a, it's farther than that, but not too, too much farther. Hezekiah is the king. He's the king now in, in um, uh, he's the king of Judah. He's the king in Jerusalem. But they're having trouble because there's another king, the king of Assyria named Sennacherib. You got to wonder what his parents were thinking. 
Yeah, you got to love the names, though. I mean, what do you think? What do you think, honey? If it's a boy, should we name him Sennacherib? Um, but here it is. Verse 1 says, After these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities and thought to break into them for himself. Now, when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, he decided with his officers and his warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped them. So many people assembled and stopped up all the springs and the streams which flowed through the region, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find abundant water? And he took courage and rebuilt all the wall that had been broken down and erected towers on it and built another outside wall and strengthened the Milo in the city of David and made weapons and shields in great number. You see, they're, they're in trouble and they're setting up their defenses. He speaks to the people in verse 7. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria or because of all the horde that is with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So Hezekiah, a descendant of David, is the king, but he's outnumbered and outmanned, but he's, he's setting up his defenses. He's trying to encourage his people. And then it says in verse 9, then Sennacherib, King of Assyria, notice another king, sent his servants to Jerusalem while he was besieging Lachish, another place, against the king, Hezekiah, king of Judah, and against all Judah who were at Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, Oh, what are you trusting? On what are you trusting that you are remaining in Jerusalem under siege? They've sieged it. Uh, they've surrounded it, and, they, and then Sennacherib sends his messengers and begins to taunt Hezekiah. Look at 11. Is not Hezekiah misleading you to give yourselves over to die by hunger and by thirst, saying the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before one altar and on it you shall burn incense? Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the lands? Were the gods of the nations of the lands able at all to deliver their land from my hand? Who was there among all the gods of those nations which my fathers utterly destroyed? Who could deliver his people out of my hand that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you like this and do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? And the story goes on. He taunts Hezekiah. He begins to get the people uh, afraid and beginning to doubt. And so there's a conflict going on between kings. This is what I want you to see. There's the king of Judah, Hezekiah. There's the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. And there's this conflict between kings. Now, into this setting comes the prophet Micah. And I want you to turn to Micah. Micah chapter 1. So on page 1102. I'll give you a chance to find it. Keep turning. It's right after Jonah. If that helps you. It's right before Nahum. 
In chapter 1 of Micah, in verse 1, it says, it introduces the whole prophecy. It says, the word of the Lord, which came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So here is this prophet that God sends and speaks into this situation. There's so much that could be said about this prophecy, this whole prophecy. Um, I read the entire thing this week in preparation for today. It's full. It's so full of um, of of um, tidbits of truth. And, and, and it's so exciting. It made me want to preach through the whole book. Maybe I will someday, but not today. Part of the um, look at chapter four, verse nine. There's an issue about the kings here. There's a thread that runs through Micah about kings. Look in verse 9, chapter 4. Now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? There's, a, there's an issue about the kings. And then he, you get down to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, you remember what we've just read from Chronicles, the context that's going on. Chapter 5, it says, Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. You see here that, that this is what's happened. Assyria is surrounded Jerusalem. There's a siege against us. It says, With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. That's what's happening. Sennacherib is smiting Hezekiah. The judge of Israel is getting beat on by the king of Assyria. Two kings, and it looks like the king of Israel is losing out on this. At that moment, they're surrounded. Um, I'll leave it up to you to read this story later and see what happens. Then he goes to verse 2. He says, and, and God is speaking in this situation. He says, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. Interesting. Interesting. He begins to speak about a little village called Bethlehem that's so small that when you, you map quest it, it comes up destination unknown. It's this little, little place. It's interesting when Joshua kind of, in a sense, maps Israel, you know, many, many years before Bethlehem doesn't get mentioned. It's not even on the list. In other places in Micah that talk about the cities of defense, the cities that they're going to prepare to defend themselves against the enemy, Bethlehem isn't mentioned. It's this little place, this little one. And it says, But as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Just as God went to the sons of Jesse... And found the littlest guy that was still out in the sh- watching the sheep. Remember, all of his brothers were marched before the prophet first. And then the prophet finally says, no, nope, it's none of them. Is there anybody else? They said, well, well, the little guy's out in the field. Get him. And God, they brought him in and God said to the prophet, that's, that's the one. Just as David was raised up from insignificance, this next one that's coming to fulfill the prophecy that was given to David is going to come from this little little place called Bethlehem. There's a little tangent here. I just uh, say it reminds me of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 where it says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Amen? God delights in using unlikely candidates for his work. Unlikely places. God's ways are above our ways. So here... God is prophesying through the prophet Micah and saying, there's this one who's going to come from this little place called Bethlehem, and he's going to be the ruler. And then look at the rest of verse 2. It says, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. We looked at this uh, idea last week. This one, now, the the prophetic picture is being amplified. Little by little, more is being said. In in the prophecies in the Old Testament, uh, often they they start small in a sense. They come up with a little hint, and then as prophecies are given, more and more information is given. And we see here the hint at the divinity of this person. There's one who's going to come. He's going to come from Bethlehem. But but his real beginnings were long ago. His real beginnings were from eternity. Somehow, now we see it more clearly, but somehow they must have been groping to think, think, well, he's coming and and we'll know from verse 3, he's going to be born, so he's human, and yet he's from eternity? But now we know this because he is God and he is man. Then look at verse 3. Therefore, he will give them up until the time. And she who is in labor has borne a child. And then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. The remainder of his brethren. Those people who are the the true Israel. Those that people will come to this one. Who are of his blood family. But there is a hint here that, but they will come, not only them, but others who aren't of the blood family, and all of them will return, it says. It, it uses that, that word, which is a hint about repentance and conversion. People are going to come to this one in a significant, life-changing way. Then in verse 4, and he will arise, and there comes that word again that's echoing what we saw about the prophecy to David and the words of the people to David when they anointed him king. He uses the word shepherd. He will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one, when he reigns, his kingship will extend not to the borders of Israel, but around the whole earth. The peoples of the entire earth are somehow now going to be, uh, going to be linked to this one king who's born in Bethlehem. And then it says in verse 5, the first line, this one will be our peace. And remember, this is being spoken to the Israelites as they're being besieged. The enemy king is surrounding them. They've taken drastic measures to try to defend themselves. It looks bleak. The outcome looks bleak. And God is saying, there's one going to be born in that little podunk town called Bethlehem. And he is going to be your peace. The conflict between kings is going to cease. 
because of this one. With all of that meaning and more, now turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. Page 1142. And we pick up in verse 1. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, where we left off last week. We've sung about this already this morning. I'm going to read the first 12 verses with some commentary. And then in the time remaining, I want to ask us some questions. It says, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, interesting, of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, now let me back up for a moment, just to make some comments. Magi, who were the Magi? The Magi most likely were not actually kings. By the way, this morning may really ruin some of your Christmas cards. Uh, sorry about that. You know, we have the picture of uh, the kings and everybody's at the manger all at the same time. And probably didn't happen that way, but that's okay. If you look at it like art, that it's just, it's kind of representative. It's, it's all cool. Um, these magi were most likely, in a sense, they were astronomers and even astrologers. They were the closest thing in those days to scientists. They, they mixed astronomy and science and then yet the religious beliefs, they, they mixed it all together. In those days, they didn't have this concept that physical and natural science was in a category apart from religious belief. It actually sounds like that might not be such a bad idea. Actually, anyway, only they, they didn't know the truth to have the right religious beliefs. We tend to separate that stuff out. Not in that day. It was all mixed together. So these, uh, these people would be um, scientists with a religious component. That's the best way to think about it. And it says they came from the east. There's a big discussion about where exactly that was. There's some evidence that says that they may have been from the Medes and the Persians and another set of evidence that says maybe they came from Babylon. It could have been either. We actually don't know. But we do know that in both cases, the Jewish people had been in those places. They had been taken captive there. And um, it, is not, it is not at all um, beyond uh, the pale of possibility that that Old Testament scriptures had been collected by these people, and somehow there was an influence of the Old Testament prophecies. Um, if anybody back then were were curious and collecting information and trying to learn, it was these people, and they may well have collected some of those scrolls. And so they're being influenced somehow by the Old Testament as well as everything else. It's a conglomeration. And then it says, they arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Amazing. They've seen his star. And again, people want to try to spend a lot of time figuring out what was that star? Was it a star? Was it a planet? Was it a certain conjunction of planets, perhaps Jupiter and Saturn, the way they they came together? Was it some kind of comet? Um, 
Let's just say that in verse 2 anyway, it's, it certainly looks like it's behaving like a star. It was in the east. The literal translation is in its rising or at its rising. It's when the stars come up. We saw that. Whatever it was, they saw it. Interesting, too, that Matthew isn't, isn't feeling compelled to explain all of this in detail because that's not the point. The point is, is that these men saw something in the sky and, and somehow in their minds it connected with other things they'd learned and they thought the, there's that king of the Jews has been born. So they take off, and it takes a long time, but they finally arrive in Jerusalem. And they said that they came not to figure out what the star was, but they came to worship the one that the star had foretold. Amen? That's the point. Now, when Herod the king, verse 3, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. You remember, you remember back in the Old Testament, there was a conflict of kings, Sennacherib against Hezekiah. Remember that? And now there's another king, King Herod. Herod is kind of an imposter king. He's been put there and allowed to be there by the Romans. Um, but he's under the thumb of the Romans. But Herod, Herod was a brutal, brutal man. His one wife... Mariam, Mariamne, she was a Hasmodian who, who was a particular line of the Jews that, that was involved with um, the Maccabean revolt. And this isn't making any sense to you. So all it is, it has to do with Hanukkah and all of that. So, so she was, she, he might have thought that her line had something to do with the prophecies and that if there was going to be a rival Jewish king, it might come from her line. But he married, he married her along with some others. But this must have made him nervous. Let me tell you who King Herod killed. He killed his wife's brother. He killed his brother-in-law. He killed his wife's grandfather. He finally f- just killed her. Um, and then um, he killed her mother. And then he had two sons by her and he just killed them too. This is a nasty guy. A real nasty guy who didn't want anything interfering with him being king. And so these wise men come. And if the Christmas cards are right, they were riding camels. And they came in. And it took them a long time to get there. And they come into Jerusalem and they don't go to the palace. They, they just begin talking to people saying, where's the king of the Jews? He, he should have been born. You know, where is the king of the Jews? <laughs> and the news gets to Herod. And Herod gets uptight. And when Herod's uptight, everybody's uptight. Because you don't know who he's going to kill next, right? So he's upset. And we know later he killed a whole lot of people because of this, right? All these kids under two years old in Bethlehem. He killed them all. So everybody is rightly upset. Verse 4. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They're thinking about the Messiah. They're thinking about a king of the Jews coming. 
When these people from the east come and talk about signs in the heavens, where is the king of the Jews? What are the people of Jerusalem thinking? What is even Herod thinking? The Messiah? That one? The one that was foretold all those years ago? Has he been born? And so he gathers everyone together, the ones who should know the Bible. And they say, where was the Messiah going to be born? And they go and they look at the book of Micah that we just read. Look at verse 5. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And he quotes what we just read. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They could see it clearly that 700 years earlier, Micah had foretold where the Messiah would be, would be, um, would be born. And that all that Micah was speaking of there, about him being a ruler, about people turning to him, about his rule being of, of all the earth, not just of the Jews, of there being peace. All of that had to do with the Messiah coming. And they're saying that's where he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. How long ago was that? And we have some thought later uh, when Herod's plan to find the Messiah baby it's himself was frustrated that he went in and he gave orders for everyone under two years old to be killed. So he was probably padding it a little bit. But, but in other words, the, the baby was probably born maybe a year ago. Some, some, a little, there's some time has gone by. And, and he, so he finds out when it appeared in verse 8. And then he sent to them, sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. He's lying to them. He doesn't want to worship that king. Verse 9, After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Verse 9, everything up to verse 9 In speaking about the star, it could be something that was entirely natural. But verse 9, no matter how you try to turn it around, my friend, verse 9 isn't a natural occurrence. There's something miraculous about verse 9, whatever that was. And so we need to accept it as that and then not worry about figuring it out. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house... Sorry, it wasn't the manger anymore. It's, it's a house. I'm really ruining the, 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 the cards. See, some time has gone by. They're still in Bethlehem, but they've gotten out of the stable, and now they're maybe renting a little house. Maybe Joseph's doing carpentry work there. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground. They've been traveling across the deserts. They've been riding these camels who knows how long. They finally found him, and this is what they came there to do. And they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, 
the Magi left for their own country by another way. They worshipped him. That's the actual point of this whole thing. They found him and they worshipped him. Now let me, let me ask some questions and hopefully these questions will help you in your relationship with God and that, that you, it'll, they will help you think about how do you respond to all of this. And the first question is this. Do you worship Jesus? Do you worship him? That's actually the point of this whole story. It's not what exactly was that star and how did this work or that? Who were the magi? The point of this is that Jesus is the king and you are to worship him. You know, chapter one, we skipped the first half of it. That's the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. And it shows that he deserves royal honor. He is a descendant of, of David. Chapter 2 shows that he will receive that royal honor. Chapter 1 is he's worthy of it. Chapter 2 is he's going to get it. Well, is he getting it from you? Is he getting it from you? Wouldn't it be a shame that we would um, expend energy and money and time to see that the Ndengareko people out in Tanzania hear the word of God and worship Jesus, and yet back here we're not worshiping him? Worship of Christ involves much more than singing. Our entire life is supposed to be worship of him. But when we do gather together and and join our voices together, this is a unique time in the week where we can actually be together and with one voice lift up our praise to God. Are you, when you're doing that, are you worshiping? Or are you just singing because we sing every Sunday. And there's nothing that the the worship leaders and the choir, there's nothing really that we can do to make you worship. We can only try to hopefully help you worship. But when I'm standing down here singing, am I just singing or am I am I really taking those words and with my whole heart expressing them to God or about God? Do you worship Jesus? That's the whole point of this passage. He is worthy of our worship and he will be worshiped. Second question. Do you give to Jesus? Look, look at verse. This is amazing. Look at verse 11 again. So it's Matthew two eleven. It says after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. It's amazing. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All very expensive. There's all even some, some, some meaning there that I'm not going to go in today. But, but they're taking from their treasures and they're giving to this, to this little child. Their worship of him, their understanding of who he is, evokes from them a desire to give. Remember when we were um, in Tanzania as missionaries and there was a, we had at that point, there was only one village that had some believers in it. And there was another village down the road that um, some people were starting to show some interest. And we began to go down and then, then Alfred and I would, we would 
we would have a service, a worship service in the one village in the morning every Sunday, and then we'd go down to this other, and people would gather around. I remember we would, in the beginning, we sat on rocks under a big tree. It was great. It was great. Church doesn't get much better than that. And then, but then eventually, um, well, some people were making professions, and one was this uh, lady named Mama Sangolo. She had a, a really difficult life. Her husband was a drunk and a scoundrel. They had six children. He wouldn't, he would, wouldn't help her that much sometimes. She'd be doing the farming by herself and trying to gather the food by herself. And, and she had little kids up to maybe about a 10 year old, something like that. And she had a very difficult life. One time we were visiting her. So we we're just sitting outside her little mud hut. Uh, sitting outside talking and she had recently professed faith in Christ so we shared some scripture with her and then she she went inside her little house and came out with a little plastic bag and the plastic bags the kind that you get in the the grocery store and they don't think about people there they would they would use these things for everything and they would get holes in them and then they'd tie knots in each hole so she came out with this bag that had holes knotted and tied closed old worn out bag and it was full of some of the beans she had harvested from her own little garden and she took them and she she said she handed it to us and said i i want to give to god can i how do i do that can i give this to you we hadn't we hadn't even talked about giving with her We hadn't said a thing to her about giving. We hadn't gotten that far in the Bible. But here she was in her dire poverty. And nobody told her, except the spirit in her, said, man, if you you worship God, you just want to give to him. Amen? This Christmas season, we give gifts to each other. And it's fun. I enjoy it. But are we given to the Lord in whatever way? I'm not saying this because I'm the pastor of this church. I'm saying this just because the text says it. What are you giving to Christ? Are you giving to Christ? Somehow that's just what happens in people who are overwhelmed with who he is. And we just want to worship him with our life. And it reaches down and it touches our treasures. And we just give. We give. Look, I, I, let this be a challenge to you that as you give this Christmas time to, to, to people, look for a special place where God may nudge you to give to him. Just look for that and say to God, where's, okay, I've given, you know, we've allotted this much money for everybody in our family. We're going to buy gifts. I'm going to allot the same amount for you, Lord. Where do you want me to give it? Just do that. Just do that. He'll answer that question. And give you the joy of giving. Third question. Third question I want you to ask. Do you compete with his kingship? This is one of the great, great themes that come through this whole passage is that, that there's David and he's the king and then people compete with him. One of his descendants is Hezekiah, but Sennacherib is there competing with his kingship. Jesus comes now. He's going to be born, but Herod calls himself the king and he's going to compete with Jesus. 
There's all this competition. But my friend, remember what it says in Micah chapter 5, verse, I believe is the first line in verse 5. That the one, he is the one who will bring peace. And where there is peace, there is a cessation of competition on who's going to be the king. No more competition. There's going to be peace. No more fighting. There's going to be peace. Every other king is going to acknowledge that the supreme king is Jesus. Well, what about you? Are you competing with his kingship even in your own life? You know, sometimes we wonder, how, how, does that, how does that work itself out? How does it look if I am submitted to Jesus as king? Well, it looks just that, that you are submitted and that your attitude, it's a heart attitude. It's nothing that other people can look at your life and say, well, because you do that, Jesus is the king. That, that, that never works. It's the attitude of the heart. Every day as you go through life, do you look up to God and say, Lord, you lead me this day. You help me this day. And the decisions you make, you're praying and blending God into it, saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? In your relationships with people, you're trying to relate to people the way he would have you relate. The way you treat people is the way he, the king, would want you to relate to people and treat them. Don't compete with the kingship of Jesus Christ because... You will lose. And it's much better to lose that battle willingly and say, Lord Jesus, take my life. Than it is to get to the end of your life and have him force you to your knees and find out in the judgment day that all is not as well as you thought it was. Don't compete with him. Call him your king. And then fourth question. Do you doubt the good intent of his kingship? You see, one of the reasons that we resist the kingship of Jesus in our life is because somewhere down in there, we're afraid that if we, if we let God do what he wants to do, it's not going to be as nice for me. We think that it's not going to be so good. We think we're not going to get what we want. It's going to be not a nice life if we let Jesus be the king. But remember... Remember, that's just a lie. That's Satan joining up with your own sin nature and and just and the world and giving you those thoughts. Remember that word shepherd over and over from all the way in the beginning where we began to read into Micah and into here. The word shepherd is there. Jesus is not just a, a ruler with authority. He's not a hard and cold ruler. He's a shepherd shepherding his people shepherding his people he has a good intent for you there may be and there will be difficulty in your life but the shepherd shepherds you through it he brings you through those trails through the valley of the shadow of death and leads you up to the highlands don't doubt the goodness of his intent fifth question do you realize that you are living in his kingdom now? This is really interesting. Um, look at chapter 3, verse 1. So it's Matthew, chapter 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look, chapter 4, verse 17. 
From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, there's a mystery in this because we know that that the kingdom as it eventually will be is not the way it is now. And sometimes, though, because we know that much more is coming, the consummation, the completion of his king of his kingdom on earth is coming in the future. We kind of check out of the present, say, well, that's coming later. I'm just going to hunker down and do the best I can and wait for all of it to pan out in the end. But that's I don't believe that's the way we're to live. There's a there's a part of his kingdom, a beginning of his kingdom, a, an expansion of his kingdom. It's hard even to say to know how to say it, but it begins now and we're in it. The king has come. Amen. That's what Micah was saying. There's a king going to be born. And he's the one that was foretold hundreds of years ago. And that's what the, 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 the people in Jerusalem, the, the Sanhedrin and the chief priests, when they were asked, where's the Messiah, the king that's coming? Where is he going to be born? Bethlehem. That's what all this is about. This king has come. Do you realize that you're living in his kingdom now? And it may be confusing sometimes to know the difference between, well, what we're to expect from God in exercising his kingship now versus later in the end when he comes again. But I'd rather believe him for a lot than a little. Amen? Let's believe God and let's enter into life saying, Lord, how do you want to use me to extend your reign in this world? Teach me, Lord. Show me, Lord. I want to be a part of it. Number six, sixth question. Do you remember that his kingdom will include the peoples of the whole world? Remember that in Micah where it says it's to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the earth. And isn't it interesting? <laughs> it's, it's amazing that in Matthew's, in Matthew's, the way he writes the story, the first people that come and acknowledge who Jesus is are foreigners. They've come from the east. They're not even the Jews. Now, we, we know from other, other accounts, and especially in Luke's, Simeon, the aged man in the temple, he, he was given a revelation of God. He recognized who Jesus was, and that actually occurred before this. But in Matthew's story, he's making a point that this one who was foretold in Micah, who would have a worldwide reign, look, the ones that first bow at his feet are from the ends of the earth. And so it is, my friend. We have to remember that God's, God is no tribal God. He's not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the entire world. And part of what we do here is to remember that and to look for those peoples in the earth that haven't yet heard the gospel and pray for them and do whatever we can to get the gospel to them. Because whatever else The kingdom of Christ means in this world today, we know this, it means the gospel getting to people all around the world and people believing in Jesus Christ and being saved. And lastly, seventh question, do you remember that this king suffered in your place? The last place in Matthew where he talks about Jesus being the king. We've seen the first. The last place is at the end of, his, end of the book in verse chapter 27, and it's on the cross. 
chapter 27, verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. Verse 37. So it's 27, 37. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So right there, on the cross, it's declared. And the Jewish leaders didn't want it to be there. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. Stop bothering me. That's what's going on top of the cross. And there is the one being crucified. And it's declared above him. He's the king of the Jews. And yes, he was crucified. And he suffered unutterable agony there on the cross. But from other scripture, we understand that he did that. He put himself in your place. He put himself in my place. And he suffered there on the cross to take care of your sins, to take your sins and get them out of the way so that you can be reconciled with God. That's our king. Amen? That's our king. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father now, waiting, reigning now on the earth to, some, to, to the degree that he's planned to do it. And then he will come again. This king will come. This king will come. Amen? Amen. Well, I trust that this has been helpful to you. But I pray especially that as we ponder these seven questions, that that place in your life where God the Spirit's nudged you, that you will respond. It won't be in all seven, but maybe one of the seven. Will you respond to him? Will you respond to him in the way he's, he's prompting you? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your, your work through history, human history, how you've, you've foretold what you would do. And then it's clear that you did do it. Now all that is yet to come that's been foretold, we have confidence, Lord, as we look forward. You will do it, and we thank you. Lord Jesus, we confess that you are the king. You're the rightful king, the worthy one. We bow willingly at your feet and worship you. Work, O Lord, I pray, in each of our hearts so that that where we need to change, we change. That we do not compete with your kingship. Lord, Lord, keep us from that. And use us to spread your kingdom. And glorify yourself in us and through us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless. Lord bless you all.